0: Morning, church. You may be seated. We'll begin this morning with a, a brief recap. Today we'll be undertaking a study on James chapter 2. This is our seventh message in a series on the book of James. It's been a while since we've been in this text. We took a refreshing and God honoring break to explore the Advent together. We are reminded that Scripture is a it, as a whole has Christ as its theme. The Old Testament is full of the message, watch and wait. And as Brother Ray took us through Advent message, we saw the angels declaring, come and see. And now as we're in James, we're in the part of the gospel narrative where we see Jesus saying, go and tell. And James is part of that that first group of men and women that God used to go and to tell the gospel. We come back to the book of James and we recognize that James himself provides us with commentary on the gospel incarnate. James walked with Christ. James heard Christ preach and his letter is encapsulating the essence of who Christ is and his message for us. We'll be reminded that this letter is full of practical truths to a group of believers, Jewish believers, 12 tribes in dispersion that needed a reminder of how the gospel ought to work in their lives. We'll see as we delve in today's text, the, the theme of the gospel being brought forth. For those of you who are visiting here this morning, just a, a fair disclaimer, we'll have three kind of key areas that we'll look at as we approach this text. We'll see the law of God. We'll see the size of sin. And we'll see the magnificence of mercy. Those first two, fair warning, are an offense to us. The weightiness of the law, the size of our sin. But without understanding those, we won't understand and grasp the magnitude of God's mercy. To recap what we've studied, I'm going to invite you to to stand yet again. We're going to read verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2. Our time together this morning will be spent primarily on verses 8 through 13. The word of God, beginning in James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Please remain standing as I pray. Father God, we thank you for Advent. We thank you that you came in human form to show your mercy to us through the mystery of the gospel. We pray this morning that we would ponder anew the mission that you started at the manger, took to the cross, and ended with the empty tomb. We pray that you prepare our hearts to receive from your word this morning. If there's anything that would keep us from listening, God, put that aside. Keep us free from distraction so that we might see your face. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. By means of, of recap, that first portion of James chapter 2 is about favoritism. It's about conduct between believers in the church, looking for their own gain from those in the family of God, and in doing so, failing to live out the character of their holy God. That's why the, the first verse of chapter 2 reminded us that, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold faith. In our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. What James is communicating is that faith in God is on one hand, and this sin of favoritism is on the other hand, and the two are not compatible. It's with that in mind, we'll pick up at verse 8. For those of you who take notes, you're going to notice that there is a, a theme of the, the law in what we go through in this text of James today. And if you want to write them down so you can spot them as we go through, this might be a great opportunity. The first thing that we're going to observe is the term the royal law. As we move through, we'll then look at the whole law. It's a term that James employs. We'll also look at the law of liberty, which is the the title of today's sermon. And then we'll look also at ceremonial law. The purpose of all of this is to take us to the magnificence and the magnitude of God's mercy. James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So this first terminology we come to is the the term of royal law. He says, if you fulfill the royal law. Well, what does that mean? We know that during the time in which James is writing to these believers, that the the Roman Empire is the, the force to be reckoned with. If we were to use the term royal law, we might think of the emperor or the king. But that's not the kind of law we're talking about here because he says the royal law according to scripture. So what is the the royal law according to scripture? Well, first we should understand that the term royal law isn't used anywhere else in scripture. James uses that term. So what does he mean by it? By this point, you've observed that your brothers that are coming up to preach in front of you on Sunday mornings have not spent an extensive time in seminary. We are not Greek scholars. And so while... God is graciously allowing us some on-the-job training. Um, Rather than impress you with a Greek word that I probably won't pronounce right, I will tell you that the word royal means that it's the supreme. It's the top. It's the best. And a way that you'll remember this is uh, my recent experience going to Dairy Queen with my youngest son. They have a menu of blizzard options. And the most expensive, naturally the one that was selected, is the royal blizzard. Okay? So this is the top. This is the, the most important. So James is saying, if you fulfill the most important law according to Scripture, then you're doing well. Well, what is the most important law according to Scripture? Might it be the top ten? Might James be referring to the Decalogue, the top ten? Perhaps. Or he might be referring to this concept of what he's saying right after this. He says, you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you ask around and you ask a non-believer for uh, an essence of what is the, the morality of, of Christians, they might give you Matthew 7 verse 12, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would do unto yourself. But in the gospel, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 through 39, we have the question posed to Christ. What's the most important commandment? What is the royal law? What is this most important thing that must be remembered. And we know it well. Jesus explains all of the law and the prophets as having their essence in this commandment, this royal law. I'll start at verse 34 of Matthew chapter 22. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, What is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And you might say, James is only mentioning the second part of that, right? He's only mentioning to treat your neighbors in a certain way. But you see, the first and the second commandment are inseparable. God's law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments is is divided into two kind of groupings. The first is to dictate how man's relationship with God ought ought to be. The vertical relationship between God and man. For those of you who may have glanced at the homework that Anne sent out, the first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. And the second six deal with our horizontal relationship with our fellow man. The two are so inseparable that in 1980, a Kentucky's school superintendent decided to print out the Ten Commandments put it on every wall in every classroom. Some parents, uncomfortable with the, the spirit of that very law, went to the court system, first to the Kentucky courts and ultimately to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, looking at that first portion of the law, this is clearly religious in nature. And from that point on, a law was passed, Stone versus Graham, a Supreme Court precedent, and the Ten Commandments were removed from public schools across the land. You see that how you treat your neighbor is implicitly applied and related to our relationship with God. So when James brings us to the royal law, he's explaining to us that this is twofold this is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself, the horizontal and the vertical. So when we see James talking about this, this is implied because he begins with verse one and he's talking about how we must show no partiality as we hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love the neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Of course, this is written in a subjunctive way because obviously the brothers that James is writing to, the sisters that James is writing to, weren't doing this well. If they were doing it well, you probably wouldn't have had to write it. And we know from all the verses beforehand that there's discrimination. There's judging of brothers and and those who come into the assembly. There's looking at Mr. Goldfingers that's got lots of bling on his hand and he comes in with a lot to offer the church. And then there's the poor guy who gets seated off to the side. We know that this church has some fundamental problems with how they treat one another. And so James begins with that. The royal law, the most important thing, that which defines our relationship vertically with God and horizontally with one another is off base. And then in verse 9, James goes right straight to the point, and he brings up this word that we love to hear, right? This word. He says in verse 9, he says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Sin. A word everyone is familiar with in this body of believers. We preach the doctrine of sin. It's called homardiology. It's the, this idea that, that sin is at work within us and that we are needful of Christ. Sin needs no introduction. Genesis 4, verse 6 is the first time we actually find the word sin in Scripture. Of course, we see it at work already. Lucifer rebels against God. The angels fall with him in an act of divine disobedience. And then we find Adam and Eve who take from the the tree. But the first time we find the word sin used is God's interaction with Cain. Cain in his, his murderous heart, he's envious of his brother. And he seeks to take the life of his brother. And God warns him, sin is crouching. Sin is crouching at the door. Be careful. And he calls out that sin. Sin needs no introduction. But then God gives us the law. And the law helps us to identify that sin. To identify clearly what is sin. In this particular verse, he tells us that partiality is a sin. It violates God's royal law. We find other scriptures, predominantly in the the book of Romans, to help us understand how the law Helps us understand the size of sin. Romans 4, verse 15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You see, the law came to help us understand our need for a right relationship with God vertically, and then in turn, how to have a right relationship with those around us horizontally. Romans 5 verse 20 says something similar. Paul writes, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So we have the law, the royal law, explaining to us that we are transgressors of the law. The particular sin that James is talking about here is a sin of partiality amongst the brothers, and we'll go on to see that it also deals with a lack of mercy, a lack of grace amongst the brethren. You see, as we move into this study, you need to understand and have a right perspective on the size of our sin. There's two ways we can err on this. We can err on one side of the equation and think that our our sin is small. We can compare ourselves to others and think, well, our sin's not like that person's. Or we can think that somehow in our life, the good things that we've done have outweighed the bad. That would be moralism. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20 says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We need to be mindful that the law convicts us of sin and gives us a right understanding of the size of our sin. On the other hand, we might think that our sins are so great we could never understand or accept the mercy of God. Too big? or too small. As we consider the size of our sin, if you're in that that camp of people who think that there's so many things that you've done to grieve God, or to offend God, that you couldn't receive his mercy and forgiveness, consider this quote. This is a quote from a book that just came out by Dane Ortland. He says, perhaps you believe his mercy and grace to be a stockpile, gradually depleted by your failures. And you're hoping to make it to death before the mountain of mercy runs out. Here is the teaching of the Bible. If you are in Christ, your sins cause that stockpile to grow all the more. Where sin abounds, his grace superabounds. And as we, we move through this passage and we understand sin, we must understand it rightly sized. Verse 10 helps us understand the severity with which God treats sin. It's not a small deal. Verse 10 of James chapter 2 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. You see, this is a God who is perfectly holy and who has established a standard in his law, and it's all or it's nothing. And you should know that the, the royal law breaks it down into two simple laws, right? Love your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor But if we look at the whole law, kind of the second terminology that we might want to define, the whole law consisted of 613 laws. A weight so heavy that no one could keep it. Scripture tells us, again, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. We can't keep the law. We could never keep all 613 and certainly... As we see here, we understand that one infraction disqualifies us from God's righteousness, distances us from God's holiness, and puts us under the entire weight of the law. We know also from the book of Romans that the consequence of violating God's law, the wages of sin, is death. That's a heavy message. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point of it, We'll be guilty of all of it. You see, it's for that reason that we transition from the message of the manger to the mission of the cross. It's for that reason that we, we understand that we are needful of Christ's mercy. Look with me at Romans chapter five. We'll begin at verse six. And look at the, the mission of Christ, coming to rescue us as lawbreakers. Romans 5 verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows us his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved, from, saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, all the law pointed to condemn us, The law was placed there so that sin might increase. And in doing so, we would be mindful that we're in need of God's mercy. And so God came in human form, foretold in eternity past. Christ came, born in a manger as we celebrated together the other night. Reminded that he came and he came as the perfect law keeper. He gave us a law as a guide to point to himself and then he came and then he kept it perfectly. The text that we see here shows that it wasn't just enough for Christ to be born, but that he also had to die. This is the the message that, that we placed our faith in. It says, but God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He humbled himself and, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, the most painful type of death. He bore that on our on our behalf, never having sinned, never having broken a law, not one of the six hundred and thirteen, not on one occasion. I would venture to say that all of us have broken one of God's laws just since we woke up this morning. <laughs> Thank you. But God is gracious. The perfect law keeper. He gave his his life for us. And it wasn't enough that he gave his life for us. But he took his life up again. It says, For if we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, his resurrection, the empty tomb. That's what affords us Mercy. I want to share with you a quote from theologian A.W. Pink. This is a a term that Pink uses as he describes God's inflexible law. This is extra credit. So we've got the royal law, we've got the whole law, and this is what Pink calls, calls God's inflexible law. Listen to the beauty of how Pink describes this. But what is the key? What is the key that solves the problem? It is this. Though in himself he was sinless and holy, yet legally he was not. He was numbered with transgressors and that which their sins had merited. The punishment, which was due them, must be endured by him. Listen again. The inflexible law of God says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all their mind and all thy strength and their neighbor as thyself." And we have done neither. We as fallen descendants of Adam have neither loved God with all our hearts, nor our neighbors as ourselves. And therefore, because Christ had to come here to suffer the due reward of our iniquities, because we have failed to love either God or our neighbor as we should, then he must experience and suffer the wrath, both of God and of man. Yes, he was numbered with the transgressors from the first moment he drew his breath on earth. That's the inflexible law of God. Someone has to pay for the lawbreakers. Someone has to pay for the lawlessness And the only sacrifice acceptable was the perfect law keeper. Christ came, he died, and he took up his life again so that we might be forgiven. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 makes it clear. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the magnitude of God's mercy. We break God's law on a moment-by-moment basis, but because of what he's done, we can know forgiveness from this. Back to James chapter 2. We, uh, we see that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And then James takes a, a really strange tangent. We've talked about favoritism in the church. We've talked about all of these things. And then things get super heavy, right? James goes and he starts talking about some of God's laws. Look what he says in verse 11. It says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So we've uh, established so far as we move through the book of James, that James provides us with a beautiful commentary on the Sermon of the Mount. Almost every Sunday, we've gone back to Matthew chapter 5. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 5. Keep your finger in James 2 because I want you to, to focus on a couple of key words here. First of all, we need to know based on verse 10 that whoever breaks one commandment of the law is guilty of the whole thing. It doesn't matter which one. So our tendency might be as we come to this to think, well, wait a minute, maybe... We're guilty of partiality. Maybe we've got a little bit of favoritism in our church, but certainly we're okay with murder and adultery. We don't have that, right? Right? Wrong. Look what James says as he introduces this notion. He says, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. He says this in a strange way. Now, he's talking to Jewish believers. Now, why would he not say, for God said, or for the law said, or, for Moses said. Instead, he says, for he who said. Who's that he? Well, verse 1 tells us. The Lord of glory. Our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, James is pointing back to a, a discourse that apparently Christ gave about the law. And it happens to be, wait for it, Matthew chapter 5. So, James gives us these two commandments in a slightly different order than we find them in the, uh, in the, in the account. He gives us first adultery, which is the seventh commandment, and then murder, which is the sixth commandment. And I want to dive in first to verses 27 through 30 of Matthew chapter 5. This is Christ's commentary on the sin of adultery. Now we know from our study as a body of believers from 1st and 2nd Corinthians that certainly there were times where grievous Adultery and sexual immorality were present in the church. But if we look at what Christ has to say here, we know that we're still at risk. Look what Christ says. You have heard it said. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Notice how how Christ says that. He's referring to what's being passed around as the law in in verbal tradition. He says, you've heard it said. And look at the next verse. He goes one step past that. He goes, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. The lawgiver is adding commentary to help us understand what God really meant by these laws. You see, it's not enough to just protect ourselves from committing the act of adultery, but it begins in our minds. James told us that back a chapter ago when he he warns us about the process of sin. James 1, keep your finger in Matthew 5, don't don't close that yet. In James 1, verse 15, he says, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see what God is interested in? The content of of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds, God discerns those things, and based on that, we're lawbreakers. Again, Matthew 5:27 and 9 he says, "You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. See, this sin of adultery is a big deal. This sin of of our thought life, which affects our horizontal relationships with others, also affects our vertical relationship with God. Without going into any details, I will encourage those of you who are parents to acknowledge that the topic of pornography needs to be dealt with in Christian homes. The concept that that adultery, that sexual sin begins in our hearts and minds needs to be addressed. That's why James is bringing this up here. He's bringing up this notion that we're lawbreakers based just on what happens in our head and our heart before we even act. Then James goes from there. And you might think, okay, So we got adultery in the church, but not murder. Surely we don't have murder in the church, right? Look again at James 2.11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It's strange that James says it this way. He says, well, you might not have adultery, but you do have murder. You might have murder. Well, this is curious. My in-law's church for many years in their church membership directory had a convicted murderer in their directory. You could go through, you could look at the address and the picture. You would find a picture of a guy in maximum security prison with an address, with a P.O. box. They would have to go through quite a grueling process to get mail to this guy. He was a convicted murderer. Killed a police officer. Came to faith in Christ, professed his faith in Christ, and was cared for as a member of the body of believers as our murderer. So is it completely unplausible to have a murderer in our midst? Is God's mercy not sufficient for even a murderer? Yeah. But guess what? That's not what James is talking about. James is not talking about welcoming a murderer in on a Sunday morning. James is saying that we're murderers. And why is he saying that? He's saying that because Jesus is warning us of this. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Verse 21 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Strong words. Just like that, that sin of adultery, the things that Go through our mind and the dwell in our heart, convict us before God. Offend his law, interrupt our vertical communion with God, and wreak havoc in our horizontal relationships with others. Just the thought of being angry with someone we call our brother or a sister puts us at risk of committing this offense. If that's not clear enough, John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, recaps that for us in 1 John chapter 3. Turn with me there if you would. John makes reference to Genesis 4.16 where we have Cain contemplating and ultimately committing premeditated a murder against his brother and look what John says starting at verse 11 of chapter 3, 1 John. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Look at verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Strong warning. You see, church, we're knowledgeable of the fact that we are lawbreakers. We are knowledgeable of the fact that our sin is great. We ought to have the right understanding of how grievous our sin is to God. Disqualified from coming into God's presence. And our own actions indict us. Even on a, on a Sunday morning, perhaps, there are things in our heart Or we harbor bitterness against those that were called to love. Perhaps as we look at this, we we realize that we have failed to extend God's mercy in a way that fulfills the spirit of the law. Christ is explaining it's not about just keeping the law. It's about knowing that you're a lawbreaker in your mind and in your heart. It's because of that, that we're needful of a savior who would graciously forgive us. James 2.11 says, If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now you'll notice that, that James is still talking about this transgressing the law. In just a minute, we'll, we'll begin to delve into this concept of the law of liberty. But it's important that we look at one more thing that Christ said in Matthew chapter 5 while well, we've got our fingers there. And that starts at verse 17. This is what Christ comes to explain. He says, I didn't come to do away with the law. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter in to the kingdom of heaven. This passage is a, is a sermon into itself, is it not? Christ said that all the law and the prophets were summarized in that royal law. Love the Lord your God as with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with that. I came to explain it to you because I've done it perfectly. I love my Father. I came from my Father. I love my neighbor because I have gone to those who have not been recipients of mercy and he showed them mercy. He came to fulfill the law. But he also says something really important that we need to understand and that's why the pulpit ministry at this church looks like it does. We talk about things like adultery. We talk about things like unforgiveness. We talk about grievous sins because Jesus says, Whoever relaxes one of these least of commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. We're a church that talks about sin. We talk about sin because we're sinners and we know this and because of that, it allows us to talk about the magnitude of God's mercy. It's all part of the same message that we need, we rely upon. Jesus says there, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's tongue-in-cheek. The Pharisees and the scribes, guilty of sin. Lawbreakers. That's a little bit about the the doctrine of of sin. All this is heavy. But here comes the good news. Back in James, we go to, to verse 12. And James uses yet another terminology that's unique to his epistle. He says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. The law of liberty is only found in the book of James, and it's hard to track with what it means. We know that the law of liberty is not, that the law doesn't apply to us anymore, right? We just read that. Jesus said, No, the law still applies. I, I came to complete them, not to abolish them. The law of liberty doesn't mean you can do whatever you want and you're forgiven. The law of liberty is best explained by letting scripture interpret scripture. So what does James tell us about the law of liberty? Let's go back again to chapter 1 and look at verse 25. This is in the section that we looked at where we talked about gazing into the mirror and allowing the law to reflect to us the truth of our hearts. And in verse 25 of James 1, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law... Comma, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So that little comma there tells us that the perfect law and the law of liberty are synonyms. And, and not only are they synonyms, but what he's describing, the perfect law, is the person of Jesus Christ. So this law, the law of liberty, is Christ Himself. We've learned as we move through, that the word perfect means that it's now complete. It's now complete. We've seen the word perfect as in describing it to ourselves as we face trials, right? James says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. That perfect law, that complete law, is the law keeper, Jesus Christ. And he came to show us the law of liberty. His mercy. Turn with me to your Bibles in Luke chapter 16, if you would. We have another parable of Jesus Christ. And in this parable, we have two accounts. Sorry, Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, we're going to start at verse 9. We have a parable. Christ is talking about two people. One who has come to properly understand the size of their sin. And the other has not. It says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous righteous, and treated others with contempt. So this first person thinks their sin is small. They think that their righteousness is enough, that they've done enough good deeds to outweigh the bad. So they trusted in themselves, self-righteous, treated others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, Christ perfectly explains that self-righteousness trying to trust in ourselves to be law keepers will come up wanting. Conversely, the one who recognizes the law keeper, the law of liberty, cries out and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, that he would be a recipient of this law of liberty. Going back, we also recognize that in the Beatitudes, Christ explains what mercy looks like and what a recipient of mercy behaves like. Luke 6, the Lucan account of the Sermon on the Mount, Luke 6, 35 and 36, says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. You see, the debt that's been paid on our behalf is so vast that we would be foolish to stand on our own merits. We'd be foolish to be like that Pharisee that said, look at my righteousness. I got this. He trusted in himself. We need to rightly understand the size of our sin and marvel at the magnitude of God's mercy. Verse 12 of this James account is a Stern warning. It says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Some of you might have a different translation in your hand. And the NASB says this even more clearly. It says, For judgment will be merciless to him who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The, the concept, and, and MacArthur and other commentary writers agree with this statement, that what we're talking about, what James is talking about here, is eternal judgment. So we can't miss how severe our sin is, how much our sin merits eternal separation from God. It says, for judgment is without mercy. It was merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But if we have rightly understood mercy, how does that then impact Our horizontal relationships. The warning is is one that helps us understand that combining this verse 13 with verse 1 of chapter 2, this is a test of faith. James does this a lot. He gives us things to test our faith. You'll see next week that one of the tests of faith is are there works? But this test of faith is is there mercy? If our lives are not characterized by the mercy that God has bestowed to us, we got to check ourselves. There's peril here. Have we understood what God has done for us? Brother Ryan already preached this morning. I thank God for that. Matthew chapter 18, we'll look at it again just briefly to help us understand what God is trying to tell us about the magnitude of his mercy. The question is asked by, by Brother Peter, And Peter says, how often will my brother sin against me? And that I must forgive him. Should I forgive him seven times? That's the perfect number, by the way, the complete number. Should I forgive him seven times? And what's Christ's response? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. More complete. That's how much you should forgive him. Because that's how much you've been forgiven. He goes into this parable and he talks about the denarii as Ryan explained to us. Look how much mercy has been given to you, Peter. Peter who denied Christ. Peter who who cursed those who said, hey, weren't you with Jesus? Peter who competed with his brother John, right? Who got to the tomb first. (laughs) Peter who constantly failed. How many times should I forgive my brother? Well, Peter, how much mercy have you had? So the application for us, brothers and sisters, is to live out that merciful living as a body of believers. A life without mercy lacks the presence of God. And a church without mercy lacks the presence of God. Look at this account, Matthew 18, verse 32. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A strong warning. You see, so much has been forgiven us as lawbreakers. How could we but not forgive? How could we but not extend mercy so that our lives would reflect the depth of the mercy that Christ has extended to us? The last aspect of of the law that I want to share with you this morning is uh, at first glance absent from this passage in James. But I, I want you to consider this fourth aspect of the law, which is the ceremonial law. So we talked about the royal law. We talked about the whole law, all 613. We talked about the law of liberty, which is Christ. But there's one piece in here, which is the ceremonial law. And it's not explicitly mentioned here, but if you were in James's readership of this letter, it would have made sense to you. You see, these are written to Jewish believers who would have understood all that's been said and all that's been symbolized and all that's been foretold prior to the advent of Jesus Christ. And one of the predominant symbols that we'll find throughout scripture is that of the Ark of the Covenant, that of the mercy seat. So look at it with me. There's a slide here that has a couple of verses you can jot down for, for homework. But I, I want you to understand that one of the first occurrences of the word mercy in the scripture is as God describes with great detail what must be built. He says you're going to build a box. And in this box, you're going to put all of the Ten Commandments. You're going to put the Ten Commandment and a Aaron's rod and things that represent the law and the prophets. So that law is in a box. Picture it, right? You need a Picture to help you. All of that law was to be carried from place to place, to, put, to be put in the, temper, in the tabernacle and ultimately in the temple. And that law was the law by which the people of God were judged. We know that just that law and its contents were death unto themselves. Consider Uzzah, who reached up to steady the hand of the Ark of the covenant. He touched it and he died. Aaron's sons went in an undignified manner into the holiest place, struck dead. The Philistines, they took this ark with the law in it and just having it in their presence caused them to break out in tumors. The weightiness of this law. But you see, atop this law, there's a, there's a lid and it was described in intricate detail to be made out of gold with the wings of two cherubim touching each other. And that was described as the mercy seat. The mercy seat, coated in gold, once a year was to be approached by the high priest the high priest, after atoning for his own sins, would go in and he would sprinkle with his finger seven times on the wings of those cherubim. And if he did so in a way that was accepted by God, God's presence would be manifest above the wings of those cherubim, above those, that mercy seat in a cloud of incense. Number seven, verse 89, we see that God speaks to Moses out of that cloud of presence. But you see, we could miss the symbolism if we're not careful. You see, we've got all of the the law, the weightiness of the law, the danger of the law that we can't come close to keeping atop with the mercy of Christ. And that mercy only effectual because of his blood. Not blood of a bull or of a ram, but blood of the perfect high priest. He came near once and for all. And because of that, guess what? The presence of God dwelt among his people. He spoke to his people. And as we look at this passage, it's no coincidence that verse one talks about the Lord of glory, right? And it ends with mercy triumphing over judgment. Church, do not expect the presence and the glory of God if we don't have his mercy well understood. If we think that we're law keepers better than others around us, we've misunderstood God's mercy, and where there's a misunderstanding or a misestimation of the magnitude of God's mercy, we risk leaving his presence, his presence departing from us. Consider the word Ichabod, right? The sons of, of, of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. The child born of them was passed away. And God said, name the child Ichabod, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. That was synonymous with the, with the ark being lost. And so this symbol, we don't have to recreate this. You don't have to draw it perfectly, right? But you need to understand the rich symbolism that James readers would have come to this. Ah, the law, that's death. Ah, the mercy, that's sweet. The mercy, that's needful. And it permits us to be in the presence of a holy and a living God. That's the only way, just to rightly understand his mercy. Let me say again what I said a minute ago. A life without mercy lacks the presence of God. If we're not extending mercy, maybe we've missed it. As we begin a new year, I would ask that each of you evaluate your heart. Take stock of the mercy of God, the magnitude of his mercy. And out of that, Extend gracious forgiveness. That's what the body of Christ is called to do. Throughout this text, that's what we see. Correcting the horizontal relationships. I want to read to you a a brief quote from a Christian rap song. So no Puritans today. It's a Christian rap song. But it says this, Rather than make light or minimize the size of our sin, we should marvel at the magnitude of mercy. So that's what the invitation is this morning. Marvel at the magnitude of mercy, take stock of it and apply it to those relationships here in this church. Have you ever had one of those merciful moments where you've extended forgiveness to someone and you embrace them in a hug that just, you melt in each other's arms? Have you ever felt the depth of that mercy in such a tangible way that you feel and experience the presence of God? That's the invitation. If there's not... A proper understanding of what Christ has done for you, it's pretty impossible to forgive. But if we've understood that, extend that grace, extend that forgiveness, extend that mercy. I'll close with this. Ephesians 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the, the perfection of your holy word. We thank you that the law served as a guide to take us to the foot of the cross, to take us to the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord God, that we are made aware of our sinfulness. We're made aware that we are lawbreakers because you are the perfect law keeper. Thank you that you came and lived a sinless life. You were tempted in every way as we were, yet did not sin. You gave your life for us and took it up again so that we might be recipients of your mercy. May we truly marvel at at the size of the mercy that you've extended to us and live it out in our relationships with our neighbor, with our brother, with our sister, with our, our family, with our friends. Thank you, Lord God, for the riches of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.